You're listening to a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hello and welcome to the HD Branch podcast. The weekly companion to your printed copy of HD Branch where I, your host Karishma Kunzang from Team Branch, give you a behind the scenes of what you'll be reading on Sunday. There'll be interviews with the biggest Bollywood celebrities talking about things that matter to them. You'll also get to know a little more about the columns by Veer Sangvi and Seema Goswami from the columnists themselves. Why should you listen to it? Well, it's one of India's top Sunday magazines. It has the best editors, columnists and opinion leaders bringing you what's happening around town. Listen on for an additional dose of brunch. This series is available on hdsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcast producing platform. Hi, how's it going? Jazz. That's a genre I was introduced to pretty late in life when I was in high school and happened to chance across some of it through a friend who went to the same piano lessons as I did. I explored but didn't really find any current scene in India while I was growing up. That is, till I met Arjun Sagar Gupta, Delhi's own piano man and our recent H-Brand star, who's now picked up multiple instruments. Almost all, if I'm not mistaken. A dear friend whose knowledge about the genre has kept me hooked on many evenings is something that I would like to share with you this International Jazz Day. Stay tuned as the owner of the Piano Man Jazz Club talks about the history of the genre, its evolution in India and how musicians and venues can help themselves and each other during the pandemic, even as he fights COVID himself. Hi, Arjun, and welcome to the HD Branch podcast. Um, so since you are the piano man, um, you know, in Delhi, uh, tell us a little about the birth of the genre, uh, you know, jazz, because uh, it's International Jazz Day, and uh, I couldn't think of no one better who could tell us a little about it. Yeah, International Jazz Day, this is going to be the first International Jazz Day since 2015 that I don't have anything planned because, well, I'm proud of the yeah. and I don't yeah. have the uh, energy to sort of do anything. I'm still trying, though. I have one day left. We did this <laughs> beautiful uh, tribute to Chick Corea a month oh, yeah. ago. Yeah. I'm just trying to see if I have the energy to edit it into a, a 40, 50 minute show mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and put that out tomorrow uh, as a special. Oh, that'll be lovely. Uh, yeah, it's a really because the, the the stream itself was like five hours long. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people actually couldn't see the whole thing, but it's amazing. It's got like it's got Paddy's trio, it's got Ron's trio, mm-hmm. it's got uh, you know Rhythm's trio, Shanai's trio, Batsal, yeah. uh, Biraj, you know, six piano players one after one. So I thought yeah, if I can just yeah. catch one tune each and put mm-hmm. together, yeah. I'll be almost an hour. hour. Yeah. You know, jazz is tended to be born in New Orleans uh, in, in the late 19th century. Uh, it's actually rooted in the musical traditions that were brought over from West Africa to the U.S. Um, when they sort of carried, uh, you know, Africans at that point as slaves to America to work in the countries in the, in the southern states, especially. And uh, it, was, it was obviously a brutal environment for them. And, you know, they weren't even allowed education conversation. Yeah. So to communicate, they used a, 
a form of communication called call and response. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, while while singing in 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 the field, and uh, just long story short, uh, this it became one of the core tools of the early development of jazz. So in in the mid 1800s, um, in in uh, there's a place that came to be called the Congo Square in um, New Orleans, and that's where you know initially they started congregating um, and holding these small festivals during harvest and all. I think uh, 1865, uh, the abolition of slavery is when uh, you know technically uh, there were more opportunities for the free African uh, American slaves. But uh, again, there was strict segregation, and it was very difficult to actually get full employment. Um, but a lot of them found work in sort of music and entertainment, and you know, vaudeville, uh, for example. There's some beautiful uh, recordings and stuff from like la- later vaudeville available mm-hmm. online. And you know, at, around this time, also one of the first iterations or variations uh, of early jazz developed, which is called ragtime. Like Scott Joplin is a big proponent of this, and this was late 1800s. Um, at the same time, you know, along the Mississippi, you had these uh, um, ferries sort of going up and down, and you had you know musicians performing on them. You also had a very interesting instrument on the ferry called the calliope, the wind-powered, the little uh, whistle-sounding keyboard, mm-hmm. um, and and that actually moved the music along the you know the shoreline. Uh, and especially in the original marching band, obviously you couldn't have pianos and stuff, right? Moving around, and yeah. you know, you'd, you'd have uh, uh, they were actually led by the flute and the fiddle, the violin and the flute. A lot of interesting stories from that period. For example, jazz wasn't actually called jazz till it entered, uh, you know, ent- you know, ed- entertainment. It's called jazz. Okay. J A W S. That was the original name. The kick drum originally was played by hand. It didn't have a pedal. That was a later development. A hmm. uh, lot of very interesting, interesting things from the period, uh, you know, but obviously uh, everything evolves. The other, so you had this one vertical of this, this call and response um, hmm. and rhythmic syncopation, which came in. The same time, uh, you know, the sa- same African-Americans uh, also started congregating in churches and they had their own style of sort of hymnals and spirituals and a basic form of harmony started coming in from there. So the root of everything comes down to the cotton field blues. Yeah. And then it's just verticals of evolution from, from there. So by the, I think 19, somewhere in the 1910s, you have those original recordings. There was one, Nicola Rocha's original Dickland jazz band. And then you had, uh, I think the first published scores of music were W.C. Handy's blues. Uh, you know, in fact, mm-hmm. uh, the first album that I heard that got me to jazz was Louis Armstrong performing W.C. Handy's blues. So, uh, yeah, uh, it's a rich history. Um, and that's why when people talk about jazz, they talk about uh, there's a, it, it's a heavy history. Um, yeah. A yeah. lot of us don't realize that. And because, I mean, not everyone sort of is born into the depth of history. Mm-hmm. But also then it's just by the nature of the kind of music that it is, uh, in mm-hmm. the sense that it, it's, it's exploratory, uh, it's free, uh, when it moved around the world, it interacted with different cultures and evolved. So you have, you know, jazz went to South America, you know, in Cuba, you have Cuban jazz, in Brazil, you have Brazilian jazz, and, you know, it's gone to Japan and has a different flavor to it. It's come to, in a lot of in, uh, microtonal elements into jazz have come from the Middle East and India. Yeah. Um, 
you know for example uh, when i interviewed guys like david kuzinski and all and mm-hmm. talked about mm-hmm. how their travels and their journeys in poland to music it's interesting you know, the european jazz the uh, movement has its own sort of uh, evolution and sound it's very interesting yeah mm-hmm. and where are we uh, when it comes to the genre in india at the moment uh, what's its history been like and what's its evolution been like um, if at all okay. yeah yeah no i, I mean uh, in india i i'd say that the original deep for jazz started maybe in the 50s yeah there's a, actually a really good resource for people who want to learn more about this is a book by nadesh fernandez called uh, the taj mahal fox trot and it's it's a it's a great read uh, to understand a little bit more about the history of jazz in india but you know um I remember stories from my piano teacher in the 60s when Duke Ellington toured India. Duke Ellington being uh, one of the most significant figures in the world of jazz that has ever existed and he toured India, you know, that's insane. And uh in back in the 60s and you know if you if you listen to the early Bollywood music there were uh, some composers who actually were taking influences from uh, bossa nova music they were taking influences from swing music uh back then. So obviously the influence of had started coming in yeah. right up like 15 onwards mm-hmm. and um there was a decent movement there were some really amazing musicians uh starting from my piano teacher to uh, a vast number of musicians across uh well vast number for that time across bombay yeah. calcutta uh, and delhi mm-hmm. um but i would say somewhere around the 70s and 80s it started dying out you know the movement yeah. um yeah. Bollywood music also started changing significantly. If you look at that Bollywood song and dance uh, structure, yeah. yeah, it's very. Yeah. I think because I, I was, yeah. I was trying to trace where that song and dance structure mm-hmm. in the Indian film industry came from, mm-hmm. and to me, it seems like it's a very direct copy of the MGM musical era from the 30s and 40s. If you go back and watch those Trader Sayers, Ginger Rogers, yeah. Gene Kelly movies, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what they were like song and dance. So those were like pure mm-hmm. jazz. Uh, yeah. and and this kind of evolved into something else and uh, the hangover uh, continued till the 90s you know in india so yeah. when i became old enough to sort of hit the music scene in in the country i think just after school when you know i started performing so it was yeah. about 2002 2003 okay there were no jazz musicians in the city uh, balani brothers were i think on their way to berkeley or in berkeley at that time Yeah. Must have been like two or three other people. Uh, mm-hmm. I met, you know, I, I I was playing with a different band, a rock setup from early in November, and I met the drummer of the band, uh, Nikhil Vasudevan, and in the in the break of our rehearsal, I started playing in in whatever broken method that I knew from the <laughs> standard, and Nikhil's like, oh shit, that sounds amazing, and he started trying to swing to it. Thanks. And then we found a bass player who wanted to play with, it. and and then we formed like a little trio, and then. Mm-hmm. that's it like forming a trio took like six months to play a we didn't have a strong understanding of the music and we there was no way to play and see, you know that that kind of thing yeah fast yeah. forward to today there is uh, not just a decently strong community of jazz musicians across the country but the quality of the musicians is mind blowing yeah. like there are yeah. musicians in our country that deserve to be nestled in the middle of the best jazz scenes in the world and i'm so crowd of these almost exclusive young musicians that it's unbelievable you know mm-hmm. uh, we spoke about ron shah you know um, yeah. you, you you know him he's such a yeah. phenomenal 
kid, you know, and he's what, 25, 26 years old. He yeah. got Utsav Lal sitting in New York, you know, with his uh, stuffed uh, puppy on top of the piano. Yeah. And yeah. man, that guy, his his understanding of sound is I mean, it's on a different league altogether. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and you know, you got Rhythm Bansal, again, 25, yeah. 26 years old. Just the, the lyricality of his playing is just, I mean... You know, we talk about virtuosity in music and people say virtuosity is the ability to play fast. I say it's absolutely not. Virtuosity is the ability to make the audience feel the emotions that you feel. Mm. And, and these kids can, can do that. Like, it's, it's amazing. It's really amazing. And, and this is just a few of the musicians, you know, fairly a handful that I mentioned because I interact with them often. Yeah. Across the country, you know, there's this uh, Karnatic Indian band, uh, you know, Karnatic uh, jazz fusion band uh, Jatayu. Oh, yes. And they, they, came, they came to play at the club uh, two years ago. And I mean, I, I can't forget them. Like, I talk about them so often because they are stunning. Stunning. And one of the very few examples of Indian bands that have incorporated microtonality into music, flawless. Very difficult to do that. Okay. All right. And uh, what was your idea when you opened a jazz club and decided to open a jazz club in Delhi? And what was the response like initially? And uh, I mean, I know I've been there enough number of times to um, overpacked houses and it's still been like phenomenally amazing. But uh, tell us a little about what your thoughts were when you were planning it um, and you I knew that it was going to be called a jazz club. I think I had a head injury or something when I... <laughs> uh, no, so uh, there, were, there were there were a couple of there were a couple of thoughts that went through my head. First is that after having spent over a decade performing around uh, you know the country outside the country, um, you know one of the things that really opened my eyes to what's happening around the world is my uh, I did a small scholarship in uh, Boston called the Newfax Program. Uh, and till then, I thought I was the bee's knees. And the little bit of exposure I got there just completely uh, broke my arrogance and my ego down mm-hmm. to a tiny little bit. Mm-hmm. It was a huge change just to understand where we actually are in the world. Today, it's very easy to know where you are in the world. YouTube and this and that. Mm, yeah, yeah. At that point, I had no... Uh, you know, double quote competition in, in Delhi of, yeah. you know, real thing. Uh, and there was no community as such, you know. So it, it was it was amazing. It was, it was just a beautiful experience. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and then when I came, like, obviously when I came back to India, I worked in a lot of different fields. When I entered the F&B industry, one of the thoughts that entered my mind is that how do we create space which is a conduit for sort of non-commercial, non-mainstream music being presented in a manner which is true to the art of the artist and is inclusive for everyone involved, the audiences and the artists, gives a space where obviously there have to be people who want to enjoy music. Yeah. Right? They have to be in a city of 20 plus million people. That's just an assumption that we took. And we said, now let's create an environment which is conducive for them, conducive for the artist, 
right? So that became like a hypothesis. Can we create a space that is this, all of this? Mm-hmm. The reason why I chose this non-mainstream sort of method or vertical is because, yeah, Bollywood listening to Bollywood, you know, there's enough ंग you know exposure is what was lacking completely yeah. for jazz blues r&b hip hop you know all of this and independent music mm-hmm. so we call it the jazz club because that's the root and the focus that we took mm-hmm. so in the beginning we always also brought on uh, independent artists we brought on composers and songwriters because the idea was to make it an inclusive space for this non mainstream community mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we more or less stuck to that till date Yeah. Um, the exception that we started making is that on the Sunday matinee shows, we allowed mm-hmm. more sort of folk artists to start coming in as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just because it's it's a different time slot, they wanted to perform, and you know, for me, those Monday to Sunday nights started representing something specific. You know, yeah. I didn't want to yeah. go into yeah. ideas. We have some really cool ideas for the future, where we are converting our clubs into. Just complete entertainment spaces, afternoon to night. Mm-hmm. So we'll be running multiple shows a day back to back, mm-hmm. uh, seven days a week. Um, you know, and yeah, you know, the idea is to how do we take more steps down the road that we started. You know, okay. yeah. Okay. And um, you know, what is the state of musicians and venues today? How can we kind of all help? Uh, each other. This is something that we've spoken about earlier, um, but yeah. just to recap, you know, since so, we're now in I mean, wave two, status is not good. I mean, even for us, for example, as a venue, we are in extreme financial distress. Um, I I don't know how we are holding on, honestly. Like there are expenses every month still. Uh, you know, we are. Borrowing money continuously to pay bills. If we, as soon as those borrowing channels dry up, we're dead. Uh, it's a fact of the matter, right? Um, and it's not just us. So many places have already collapsed. Um, so many more will. Um, it's it's just a survival game right now. Whoever can. Some people have deep pockets. Great. Some people don't, and they're borrowing, and that's us. And then there are people who can't borrow, and they've already collapsed. Yeah. We get we get calls. Like I get messages every day. That you see messages. Oh, this place is not available. This place is not available. Uh, it's it's sad. Our industry is devastated, and 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 piano man sits on the verge or the edge or the nexus of two severely hit industries, F and B and arts and entertainment. <laughs> you know, we're very precariously perched on two edges, not just one. And uh, but that's okay. I mean that's life, and yeah. everyone's in the same boat, so yeah. can't complain about it. That's why we are fighting to survive. Yes, and we're 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 coming up with newer ideas. We're you know, uh, we're, we're we will fight this. We fought for a, almost a year and a half. We're not yeah. going to give up now. Yeah, 
Yeah. This you know, literally, at hopefully, what might be the last stretch of the most uh, toxic part of this period. So artists already have such a big problem in monetizing their ability. Uh, you know, uh, revenue generation to music historically had a different context. Um, there, it was the label era till the 90s, end of the 90s, where you know there was a little more opportunity and there was a, uh, to be discovered, and there was opportunity to get even if you weren't. Discovered as a Britney Spears or a Justin Bieber or whatever, yeah. you still got paid enough money to record an album because the you know the labels had their own studios or they had studios under contract, and in India it didn't cost them a arm and a leg to record an album, so they would support in some way or the other you know this creation of art. They would mm-hmm. take more risks and more bets, and it was a more interpersonal relationship, right? You could go and smooth up to a record label producer and you know try to get shit done. And then if your album did even decently well, they would back you for the you'd actually make money from your album. So early 2000 onwards, they started changing with first the advent of the uh, you know P2P file sharing services, and then they switched over to streaming uh, methodologies. Now, in streaming methodologies, it's it's a problem because uh, everyone's on the same server. So you're responsible now more than ever for recording your content. After you record your content, you're putting on on a streaming service. The service hugely skewed by the big guys. The person who streams a hundred million times skews the scale of payments. So you'll have a very small percentage of people taking away ninety-five percent of the revenue on the platform. And then everyone else is sharing that remaining five percent, and that everyone else is thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people, right? Hundreds of thousands of people. And so, if you are streaming your music thirty, forty thousand times in a month, which, uh, in terms of albums, if you had sold a couple of thousand albums, it would be amazing. Like you'd actually earn, you know, some money. But Tens of thousands of streams are dropping the ocean. You get paid like a couple of hundred bucks or a couple of thousand bucks at the end of the year. So how do you make money off your recordings? It's not comes down to all the alternative sources of revenue, which are you know live performances, which is shut down, teaching, which only a certain uh, baseline can do. You have to have the, a basic skill level to be able to teach. Um, And you have to have built a network. You can't like it's very difficult to start. It's very difficult to start a fresh in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, you know, to start building a reputation with each other. But a lot of young artists that I've been meeting, uh, young, middle, old, in terms of experience, tell them the same thing. I say what you should be doing right now is building a Patreon page or something of that sort. You know, that sort of a service. Uh, Because it'll bring you discipline in content delivery, and you don't need too many patrons to start with. Yeah. To start paying bills, and if your content delivery game is good, then you know it. It, it just two, three, four months in, you can actually build a solid. You know, you have fifty people who are paying three, four hundred rupees a month. Uh, that's fifteen, twenty thousand rupees a month coming in regularly, and use that money reinvest. Get better. Get you know. Go on Amazon, buy some nice soft lights. Uh, you know, improve your game a little bit. Record a little better. It yes, there's a little bit of an expense. Start get depend on friends and families to 
start supporting you a little bit. Use that money immediately to up your recording game and then start putting out good content. Be regular with your content. And most of us artists can generate enough money to survive this period. And then later on, it becomes, a, over time, it can become a very, very solid revenue. I mean, big guys like Pentatonics and Jacob Collier and all, they, you know, Amanda Farmer, they, they use yeah. uh, uh, Patreon to devastating effect. I mean, the, the revenues that build up it is amazing. And that's, uh, that's just a different kind of financial period. Okay. And finally, Arjun, any tips for those who are planning to dive into the genre now, you know, in lockdown, if somebody's maybe developed an interest um, in jazz and wants to kind of pick uh, it up and, uh, you know, experiment oh, with it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, it's the best time to practice. You have nothing else to do. Uh, you know, uh, I, I did the same thing. I picked up the trumpet seriously this time finally i bought this trumpet in 2007 yeah but i picked it up on day one of the lockdown last march and uh yeah i've been playing in fact in the middle when we were actually out on our club for a few months i was playing it on stage quite often yeah. just three hours of practice every day for six months mm -hmm. uh it's amazing i'm so happy yeah <laughs> uh, so you have you have teachers are available online teachers are available globally um, there's enough resources online, but there's always, I always recommend having a teacher to start things off. And when you can go in person, go in person, but start. Um, pick an instrument that you have at home. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't, uh, identify the instrument that you like. You know, there are enough people around. I'm always there. People can write into me through the piano man email ID. I'm always there to sort of guide people on buying the right instrument. And, um, uh, you know, stop. <laughs> you can procrastinate your entire life. There's a very nice uh, two books that I recommend mm -hmm. for people to read. One is um, A Grand Obsession by Perry Means. Okay. P-E-R-R-I, -E I think. K-N-I-Z-E. And mm -hmm. she talks about this. I think in her 30s, I read this book like 15, 20 years ago. But mm -hmm. uh, in her 30s or something, she decides to start, quit her career and become a concert pianist. And it's a really beautiful book about the journey and also the fact that she has perfect pitch and she actually explores different temperaments of piano tuning and stuff. It's a very interesting book, especially for a piano player. The other book is obviously Malcolm Gladwell's uh, Outliers, which talks about those 10,000 hours you need to put in to become a master of any skill. And it's true, you need to put in the time. So put in the time. What, what can I say? Listen to more music, listen to more jazz. Uh, the key of building an audience for any art form is exposure. And that's what we've been trying to do for the last years. And I've seen it work. There's a community today which I know didn't exist and seen years ago. The listeners were there, but the community wasn't because the listeners didn't know where the other listeners were. Yeah. Musicians didn't, some musicians didn't listen to jazz, so they didn't have the exposure to start developing it as one of their so help promote the music by spreading it uh, listen to your fabulous fellow musicians follow them uh, in, in this country and uh, you know, check out some of the videos maybe. and uh, about myself um, I'm keeping my spirits up I'm hoping for a much brighter future 
there is no other choice it's only we will train I have been dying to escape to the hills for more than 2 years now. First I couldn't uh, you know get time because of my previous jobs uh, you know timings and then of course the pandemic happened. So when I found a 4 day um window of relatively less work I was tempted to run out to Darjeeling um you know the sights during the long commute from uh, the Bagdogra airport the short stop for momos on the banks of the river Tista before you set up uh, set out uphill um weaving your way up and down till the view of the snow capped mountains greet you and you know that you've reached uh, Darjeeling and of course then there's the food breakfast at Caventers overlooking the town lunch at some local place with momos um you know tea and of course cake at uh, glendries a walk along charasta and uh, you know to walk off um, everything that we've been eating and dinner at a nepali restaurant um all that and some fresh mountain air which is just automatically refreshing but uh, i didn't uh, give in to my temptations given covid but had i been in delhi I would have definitely driven off or rather have someone drive me to uh, Manali Nagar or even Landor but I'm in Bombay and I know there's the beach and all but the heart wants what it wants well here's HT brunch columnist Veer Sangvi's take on travelling to the hills doctors tell us that during these terrible times one way of avoiding covid is avoiding contact with human beings and if there is contact try and do it outdoors they say don't stay indoors don't stay in crowded places well there's not a lot you can do outdoors in our big cities almost everywhere you go you come across covid cases people tend to be infected and infection hovers in the air wherever there are people so one way if you're fortunate enough is to get away from the big cities to try and escape the infection and go to the great outdoors that's not easy to do when the temperatures outside are 35 degrees or 40 degrees but if you're fortunate enough to live in a city near the hills then that's an option try and go out to the hills try and use the great outdoors to your advantage try and spend as much time as you can under the trees and in the bushes try and eat your meals outside try if you have to meet somebody not to do that indoors try and do that completely far away from crowds do that under the skies how can you do it it's not easy i admit but there's one way all over india the british built hill stations most of them unfortunately are now in states of disrepair and over development but the area around the hill stations is still green is still verdant is still uncrowded So if you can and you're fortunate enough get into your car drive out go and stay in a hill station there are reasonable hotels there are villas for hire you may have friends with bungalows just stay far away from the infection and rediscover the lure of the hills I don't know a single person I've spoken to in the last 2 weeks um who hasn't told me about someone or the other being down with covid or um, even passing away due to it um even as i speak people from my own team are down with uh, 
COVID. But like my boss uh, Jamal Sheikh said during our recent edit meeting, uh, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And you know, that's the kind of inspiration we all need today. Um, I haven't come across a feed that isn't pleading for help. And that sinking feeling of helplessness and, um, you know, that just threatens to engulf. But I keep that edit meeting in mind, to be honest, and I'm doing whatever I can within my means to help in whatever way possible. Um, as for my own therapy, well, I've done the one thing I've always wanted to do, which is adopt a dog. And uh, so we got home a two and a half old indie rescue who's been keeping me pretty distracted. A sniff of that puppy smell is all the assurance I can afford that all's going to be well someday. How are you coping? Here's how HD Branch columnist Seema Goswami is dealing with things. When I sat down to write this column, we were waiting for my aunt's COVID result. Now that I sit down to do this podcast, I'm sad to report that she has since passed away. But I guess I'm not alone in this sense of bereavement, this sense of loss. It's everywhere around us. Family members are going down with corona. People are not being able to find hospital beds or even oxygen. It's a bad time all around. But what does one do? Because life has to go on. And even though a sense of weary inevitability has overtaken us all, we still have to deal with this feeling of impending doom. Well, the first thing I would recommend you do is to stop doom scrolling. Even though I'm on Twitter a lot because I'm amplifying requests related to COVID, I try and take time off to do something else to de-stress, either read a book, listen to music, cook a meal. That's really important to kind of recover your equilibrium. But also, if you are worried, then instead of trying to push your worries away, try and channel them into something productive. Join a volunteer group, cook home-cooked meals, and give them to neighbors and friends who have COVID in the family and can't do it themselves. If you can assist people with getting medicines and groceries, make sure you do that. Maybe join the langar in your local Gurudwara and help make chapatis. Whatever we do, we have to be positive and try and channel our energies into something constructive or else we shall all go mad. It was International Jazz Day this Friday, so I brought you the man who's like a walking encyclopedia on the journal, with oodles of good humor to perform a jazz standard for you. Yes, I'm talking about my friend and musician, Arjun Sagar Gupta, who's been my go-to for everything in the music community for years now. I hope you like his rendition of the jazz standard, Love for Sale, where he's playing the piano and singing.
appetizing young love for sale Love that fresh and still unspoiled Love that's only slightly soiled
Sunday brunch. The weekend is when you take a break from a hectic week, whether it's work from home or work from work. It's also a day to develop perspective on things by not just consuming news, but also analyzing it by listening to different points of views and figuring out what you feel about it. We hope we've been able to do just that with today's HD Brunch podcast. Feel free to give us feedback and suggestions on HD Smartcast on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or DM us directly at HD Brunch on Instagram and Twitter. To listen to more podcasts, log on to hdsmartcast.com or suno nay nazariye se. I will see you back here next weekend with another dose of entertainment that keeps things real. Till then, happy brunching, guys. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.